A very good morning to you all. It's so nice to see you all. Good morning. We are in for a treat this morning. I adore this woman, our precious Ruth Koch. Give her a round of applause, everyone. Oh, the Koch family. We are embarking on a new series called Just Women, Justice and Women. And Ruth, behind the scenes, with others, have been organizing this, um, this, these talks. And Ruth is kicking us off today. So let us pray for her and extend a hand and um, ask the Lord to come and anoint you. So Lord, come. Thank you for Ruth, for Aaron and Seth, Lord. We ask that you would anoint her afresh this day. Thank you for her gift of preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, you need the mic. I need the mic. Thanks, Kate. Good morning, everybody. So I want to start by asking you to picture a scene. It's the first few days of the school term. I am 11 years old, and I've just started at Home Firth High School, which was the very big, exciting secondary school. Here I am. Um, with my slightly oversized bag and my curly fringe. I don't know what my mum was doing. Um, and I had spent seven years previously at our country primary school. And I had had the exact same friendship group from nursery all the way up to the year six, the people that my mum had introduced me to. So I decided I would expand my social circles and get to know a few people. So I'm having these typical get to know you conversations, which invariably start with what primary school did you go to? Because that was like a territorial thing. What primary school did you go to where I was? Do you have any brothers and sisters? And what do your parents do? It was then that I began to realize that the roles my parents played were not, at that time, very common. In my family, my mum was the main breadwinner. She went to university first and then supported my dad through uni once they got married. She was the first professional, a social worker, although I was told not to tell people that just in case their parents worried she would take their children away. Both my parents worked as long as I can remember, although I understand my mum did work nights to look after us when we were little, and my dad definitely at some point went part-time to help with childcare. Some, definitely not all, of the household chores were shared and delegated to us three girls, who appeared to sometimes be their mini workforce on a Saturday morning. And I slightly envied those kids with a mum at home who would be there when they walked through the door at school from school I was also, at the time, slightly puzzled what they did all day. Roland now being a mother and realizing there's quite a lot of things that they did all day. And it's a privilege to be able to make the choice whether you work or not. But that was the first time I can remember that thinking as a girl, I might not actually be able to do some of the things that I thought I wanted to. That there might be expectations and responsibilities on me that there weren't on others because of my gender. So my experiences of a as a woman are entirely different to the other women who will be sharing in this series. And they're entirely different to your experiences as women and men. We have to remember as we start this series of women and justice that we are shaped and formed by our experiences, that we're taught, the things we're taught 
and by the challenges and opportunities that have come our way. We've already covered um, in this justice series a number of different topics. We talked about climate change, we talked about refugees, we talked about disability. And we need to remember that these issues don't stand alone. They're interlinked and they intersect. So as we approach this area of thinking about women and we focus on women, I want us to remember that these issues are all interconnected. And depending on your race, your class, your geographical location, you will experience the challenges and opportunities that being a woman or a man are held differently. So standing here today as a white, middle-class woman in London, I'm really aware, although I did grow up in the North, just need to make sure you know that, um, that my perspective is narrow and I have so, so much more to learn. But what I do know is that our culture and society here in the UK and around the world often means that there are more barriers for women to climb to be able to face the world. So as we kick off this series, I'm going to give a bit of a broad introduction and open up this conversation. And I don't think I have to hugely spell out the, um, the issues to you. But this year on International Women's Day, invariably there is somebody who asks why there's not an International Man's Day. There was a Twitter account that threatened that if any company tweeted about their International Women's Day, that they would publish their gender pay gap. Universities, companies, even the, second, uh, the sixth form college I went to fell foul of it, with many deleting their tweets out of utter embarrassment when their gender pay gap was revealed. The gender pay gap in the UK is currently 15%. That means overall women are paid at 85% of the rate of men. The gender pay gap is not equal pay. It is the general pay gap between an organization or nationally that women receive. So it's not about somebody getting the same, two different people getting different pay for the same job. Sometimes it gets a bit confusing. Thankfully, this 15% gap is narrowing. But overall, women tend to be in more junior roles and they tend to work part-time. A simple example of this is that over the last six or seven years, I've worked part-time. But in every circumstance, I have taken a full-time job and asked for my hours to be reduced. Last year was the first time ever I've had my workload formally reviewed and reduced because of my part-time hours. Which means that for the previous five years, I've been working a full-time job for less pay. Just been cramming it into four, hour, four days a week instead of five days a week. I see lots of nodding. So that's the gender pay gap. In the world, almost one in three women have been subject to some form of physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. That figure doesn't include sexual harassment. So that is about physical and sexual violence. It doesn't include general catcalling, somebody shoveling up a little bit too close to you, making you feel particularly uncomfortable, asking you leering questions. But on a general um, survey of my friends, I can say that probably pretty much every woman has experienced some kind of sexual harassment in their lifetime, usually on London transport. 
And there's news has come through this week of what's been going on in the House of Commons. You can see that it isn't just us everyday people, it's um, people in power as well who are subject to sexual harassment. And the majority of those complaints in the House of Commons are women complaining about how they're treated, unfortunately, by men. There's uh, another stat, the uh, ONS did some survey not long ago about how women feel safe walking home um, at night, whether that's in a busy place or a quiet place. So um, it works out that half of women in the UK will feel unsafe walking alone at night, whether it's in a busy or quiet place. Half of women in comparison to one fifth of men feeling the same. Women are more likely to put measures in place to protect themselves. Many women, I'm sure, will be familiar with the putting the keys in your hand, poking them out of your fingers, so you might be able to stab someone in the eye with them. Not quite sure if I'd ever be able to do that. Or the guidance that was given a while back about how women who have long ponytails should tuck them in to stop their hair being pulled back um, if somebody chases them down the street in the middle of the night. And then we look at the figures for women, the violence against women globally, and they're just horrifying. I don't want to go into all of them, but it's terrifying the level of seeing women as objects or tools and not people who are made in God's image. Last time I was up here, I was speaking about climate change. This issue also disproportionately impacts women, with 80% of people displaced to climate change women and children and when conflict hits in places like Ukraine girls are two and a half times more likely to be out of school in traf among trafficking victims globally five out of every ten are women adult women and two out of every ten are girls and then women also face challenges in the church where many roles are often just not open to us due to our gender. Today, I think, is one of the first times I've ever worn trousers when speaking in a church. And that's because many years ago somebody told me that it's better to avoid any controversy of a woman not wearing a dress. It's controversial enough having a woman speak, never mind not wearing a dress in certain churches. Which means I've become a massive fan of dresses with pockets, because if you didn't know, Mics, roving mics or uh, tie mics are designed for men who have trousers and shirts and ties. So get a dress with pockets and I don't have a tie to clip my tie mic to. Which is when Mike asked me if I wanted a roving mic, I always want the handhold just to avoid any complication. One of my previous jobs, I was required to speak in churches a lot. And on numerous occasions, I was asked to be interviewed rather than speak or to do a short presentation after the service to the women because of my gender. When I was probably the most qualified and appropriate to do the role. Speaking in church and women in leadership is something we're gonna address, but we thought it'd be helpful to get someone who's a little bit more theologically minded to come in. So watch this space as we open up this conversation a bit more. But given all these stats and all these stories, which you're probably a little bit overwhelmed with by now, I just think we have so far to go. 
When we look at the Me Too movement and the number of people who have just said, yeah, me too, I don't think it's a case of saying we have a few bad apples in our society, but rather the culture we're swimming in perpetuates this situation, that both men and women, unfortunately, find themselves in a position where they stand by and allow this system to continue. But when, as followers of Jesus, have we ever been asked to swim as part of our culture? In fact, if we look to Jesus, we're so often reminded that he was countercultural. And it starts right at the beginning. If we look at Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created us in his image. We must remember that as humankind, in whatever form, we're image bearers of God. And we must value one another in this way. And then in Genesis 2, we read that one was created from the rib of Adam. Not his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon, but out of his side to be equal to him, to be in partnership with him. The creation is a great beginning to set our score by, followed by some really strong heroes of the faith, Ruth, Esther, and Deborah. But by the time Jesus arrived, it had gone a bit skew-if. In New Testament times, the head of the Jewish household, a man, would be starting his day with saying three blessings. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. The devout Jewish man, all three of these groups were suspect, subordinate, second class. And they prayed this prayer every morning. So into that context, here enters Jesus into the first century world, born of a woman, speaking with, teaching, healing, and even eating with Gentiles, women, and slaves. So we can see in the New Testament that Jesus was already countercultural. He had female disciples, and women funded his ministry. In Matthew 12, 46 to 50, it says this. While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. But to, one, to the one who told him this, Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. In Middle Eastern culture, he would not be able to gesture to a group of people and describe them as his mother and brothers if there were no women there. He would rather have used the term uncle and cousins or uncle and brothers. He would not mention his mother if women were not present. It would be deemed offensive. And then in Luke 8, 1 to 3, we hear that Jesus' raggle-taggle gang included some women as they were traveling about. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who were provided for them, who provided for them out of their resources. And many others who provided for them out of their resources. 
These were women who were able to fund the ministry and who were traveling with Jesus and the male 12. Presumably, they were staying overnight in the same villages. And even in current Middle Eastern culture, although women would travel with men, it's unheard of that they'd be expected to stay overnight with relatives, not in the same place um, or the same village as the men. This whole scenario is completely unheard of, yet Luke chose to make it clear and recorded it in his gospel. Mary Magdalene is mentioned 12 times across the gospels, which is more times than most of the male disciples. Later in Luke, we have Mary and Martha, the passage that forever challenges me as a person with a never-ending to-do list. However, the point here that N.T. Wright says is that to sit at a rabbi's feet like Mary did, to sit at the feet of a teacher was a decidedly male role. And to sit at the feet of a rabbi was what you did if you wanted to be a rabbi yourself. And Jesus affirms her right to do so. Again, Jesus taught, ate with, and healed women repeatedly. Swimming against the tide of the prevailing culture he found himself in. He allowed women to sit at his feet. He gave them time to listen and learn from him. I like to see his attitude to women as like a golden thread weaved throughout his ministry from birth all the way to his resurrection. In securing his role as the best storyteller on earth, he also ensured when he was teaching his parables, he gave examples that spoke to both men and women. So in Luke 5, he used the example of mending the garment, a woman's role, and making the wine, a man's role. The parable of the mustard seed, farming, a man's role, linked to the leavened bread and the yeast, a woman's role, making bread. The man, the shepherd, who lost his sheep, and the woman who lost her coin. Let's see if we've got any good Anglicans in the room. If I were to say to you, he has risen, alleluia, what would your response be? Look at you guys. Well done. Oh, it's up there. <laughs> Cheaters. Um, so, at Easter, um, we were visiting my parents, and my dad is a lay reader in the Anglican church, so we took Seth to the local Anglican church. Seth's my son. And I taught him to say, he has, if I say he has risen, he says he has risen indeed, and he's very excited to do that in church and get it right. But it struck me when looking at the resurrection that the first person to declare he has risen was a woman. In all four accounts of the Gospels, Jesus appears to women at a time where women's testimony would not bear very much weight. Yet he gave women the privilege of proclaiming the resurrection. And I'm sure over this series we'll explore a little bit more about how Jesus interacted with women. But I want to ask you, what are you formed by? We spent some time at Belfast City Vineyard and um, Andy, the, one of the leaders there, talked all the time about formation. How are we formed and what are we formed by? And are we formed and shaped by our culture that we're in today? Or are we formed by Jesus 
who was operating in, I think, an even more difficult and complex climate for women. But his treatment and attitude towards them runs through like a golden thread in his ministry. So how do we do that? How do we swim against the culture we're in like Jesus did? I think when we make space for this, we begin to see amazing things that women and men are doing and how God is using them. A great example is a woman called Pauline who I met a few years ago in Kigali in Rwanda and she just totally blew me away. She was amazing. Pauline's story is that her and her husband were really, really struggling. They were on the verge of being evicted. Neither of them had a job. They'd been evicted numerous times. So in this current accommodation, they were struggling. They were struggling to pay for food. They were struggling to be able to send their kids to school. And Pauline told me about the shame that she felt when she went to go and pick up her children from school, being asked to pay for the school report and just not being able to, to do that. And Pauline was woken up early in the morning, about 4 a.m., with a voice that said, go to church and pray. Pauline had no background or history of church. She didn't even know where a church was or really what one was. But she woke up, got up, and followed this voice and found herself in a church down the street where there was someone waiting for her who said, welcome, I've been waiting for you. After this experience, Pauline basically prayed, God, if you're real, help me, and listed a number of things that she wanted to see change in her life. A few days later, she had a call on her phone with somebody asking her to meet her. They gave her oil, rice, and maize. At this point, her family had not eaten for three days. From then on, Pauline started going to this church, and she joined a savings and loans group, and she had an idea as part of this group with a whole load of other women to set up a catering business because she had, she's a really good cook. Her food is amazing. I tried some. Um, and that business has gone from strength to strength. She um, employs local people. She uh, runs events in weddings and catering for different people in the community. Her husband now has a job and they own their own home. Her children go to school every day and they're healthy and well-fed. And she was used by God as a powerful witness to her community. And she's also able to provide and support her whole family just by following a call in the middle of the night. Another example is a not very known, well-known lady called Elizabeth Cadbury. He's well-known probably for being married to George Cadbury of Cadbury's, who founded Bourneville, a village in Birmingham, which was to enable safe and secure housing for the workers of the Cadbury factory and beyond. Um, Elizabeth and George were Quakers, and they were inspired by their faith to, um, to tackle injustice when they saw it. Um, and my first experience of a vineyard church was at Dame Elizabeth Cadbury School in Bourneville in Birmingham. Um, and so her name has um, stuck in my mind ever since. On her husband George's death, she became the chair of Bourneville Village Trust. She was in that role for 50 years. She was involved in the development of housing schemes, community life in Bourneville Village, as well as advocating for the welfare, health, and education of women and children in Bourneville and beyond. From her faith in Jesus, she was inspired to create so much change. 
And it's not just women. I'm sure many of us remember Andy Murray correcting the journalist that um, he was talking about some American player who'd got to a final, and he said his first player to get to the semi-final, of which he said, male player. And he, he stuck his neck out there and corrected that everyday generalization um, that women, you know, that the Williams sisters had done amazing stuff in tennis. They just put aside because maybe they're not male. Um, or Benedict Cumberbatch, who can't say penguin, if you've ever heard him do that, but he can say that he wasn't going to participate in any roles where women were paid less than, than him, that there was no, that where there would be no gender pay gap. You see, there are women and men doing amazing things nowadays, to, despite the culture we operate in, to be able to see huge things change and to swim against the tide of the culture that we face. Recently, I did some training at work about traveling alone, and it was very much aimed at supporting women to put measures in place to keep themselves safe. Coming off back of the murders of Sabina Nessa and Sarah Everard, we will put that tra training in place to protect ourselves. But it shouldn't really be this way. It shouldn't be women that are putting all the measures in place to keep themselves safe. Women will have to continue to protect themselves to avoid leaving the house at night, to staying out of the dark streets or quiet places until we begin to shift and model a different culture. We see more and more women being vulnerable to the changes in climate, having to survive trafficking and missing out on schooling. I think we can make a choice here to swim in the culture we find ourselves in or learn from Jesus on his countercultural approach to challenge assumptions and consider the injustice that women are facing today. Seth, my son, was learning about voting in school recently, and he came back home and explained to me how unfair it was that women weren't allowed to vote at some point. He was completely outraged. In fact, his whole class were completely outraged when they found out. I really look forward to taking him to vote with me this week and reminding him what a privilege it is. But I also hope in the future that he will continue to be shocked and outraged about what has happened rather than expectant that these things will happen and that women are treated in such a way. So I want to encourage you this week to consider what would be countercultural to you. As Mary sat at the feet of Jesus to learn from him, it's a reminder that we can learn from him and his approach. So each one of you has, as gold as I could find it last night, thread on your seat or there's one near you. I encourage you to take it. Hold it up. Let me make sure you've got it. Hold on. There are some lurking around. So throughout Jesus' teachings and actions, his countercultural attitude runs through his ministry like a golden thread. And as Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and learnt from him, I want to encourage us to sit at his feet and learn from his attitude. So if you're able to now, I want you to take the opportunity to tie this golden thread that runs through Jesus' ministry onto your shoes at your feet to remind us to be formed by Jesus this week. 
So I am modeling it on the zip of my shoes. If you have laces, I'm sure it'll be easy. Some of you may be a little bit less simple. I'm very impressed that you're all doing it and not just looking at me like, why would I do that? So whilst you're doing that, let me just pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son Jesus as just a brilliant example. Thank you that in the culture he was born in and his ministry operated in, he didn't swim alongside, but he was countercultural and different. That he showed what women could do and invested in them and sat with them and ate with them and taught them and healed them. And Lord, I just pray that you will remind us regularly to be formed by the teachings of Jesus and followers of his way. That we'll be guided by his direction and not by the direction that we face in the world. And so this week, Lord, I just pray that you will encourage us and remind us to be countercultural, to swim against the tide and to sit at your feet. Amen. So I'm going to invite Gemma and the team to come back and Ruth and Ravi, or Ruth, is going to lead us um, in ministry. Thank you and thanks so much to Ruth, <laughs> the lovely Ruth, thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs>